Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. Nothing can compare. Lord, we, we too little remember your marvelous deeds and that you sit enthroned above. We too often forget that, Lord, and our eyes get lowered to things on the earth. And I pray, Lord, that today, this morning, as we turn our attention to the scriptures, that you would cause us to lift our eyes above. You would help us to think and realize that your thoughts are not our thoughts, and so it will require us to learn, to not take things for granted that we understand. Lord, I pray that you would instruct us today. I pray that your word would be spoken, that we would listen, understanding that we are hearing from you, seeking to hear from you and not from man, Lord. Please teach us. Thank you for these times to be together and to gather around the scriptures. Help us to see how awesome and holy it is. Lord, we commit this time to you, and we pray that you would change us and do what you will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I think we all know how this is. You come home, and... Someone's watching a movie, and it's a movie that you've never seen before and you're not familiar with, and they're near the end of the movie. And you get home, and so you arrive on the scene when the movie's almost over, and it's a big epic moment in the movie. It's a big climactic moment in the movie. You don't know the character. You don't know the stories. And even though it's the big climactic part, it doesn't interest you, right? And your family member who's there watching the movie is gripped by what's happening. And they're saying, shh, you know, quiet, I'm watching. You don't really care. And it doesn't mean anything to you, so you make noise, and they tell you to be quiet, and you make jokes, and they're saying, you know, stop it. Though others are gripped, you are not. And even if they try to catch you up on the movie, even if they try to say, well, look, this character, you know, he came from here, and his name's this, and he was doing this, and this is why they're in this situation, you can say, oh, that's interesting, but... It doesn't grip you, even if they try to catch you up. You have to watch it from the beginning, right? In order to be gripped by what happens in the end. You have to be engaged with the movie from the beginning in order to be engaged with the movie in the end. And trying to catch someone up just doesn't really do this, doesn't cut it, right? doesn't do the same thing. That 
is exactly what it is like for most Christians when they come to the Bible. You see, most Christians come to the Bible in the middle of the story or near the end of the story. And really, that's, that is the case, isn't it? Because you've got this long story that started in the book of Genesis. And by the time you get to Jesus, then you've got the announcement, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So the gospel comes to all nations. And when the gospel comes to you, it's coming to you sort of in the middle or the, near the end of the story, right? Now you're starting to hear of Jesus. Now you're starting to hear of God. But there's been a lot of things that happened before you ever heard anything about God and anything about Jesus. That's when we come. And too often, we hear the things of the Bible, and we're excited about what we do see and what we do hear, but we're not gripped by what the Bible says about the end because we're not engaged with what the Bible had to say at the beginning, in the past. And this is a perfect example here in the book of Daniel. Daniel is talking about the end, right? Daniel is describing the coming of the kingdom of God and the salvation of Israel. And for a lot of people, that doesn't grip them. That's not exciting. That doesn't interest them. And the reason is, is because they're not interested in the beginning. In my experience, those who care little about Israel's future care little about Israel's past. Israel's future isn't significant because Israel's past isn't significant either. Yeah, we learn about it as Christians. We learn about it. It's like trying to be caught up on the story. Okay, interesting. But it doesn't engage us and grip us, and so neither does the past. So here's a principle we can draw. We will never understand and be gripped by a book like the book of Daniel, which is about Israel's future and the end of the world, if we fail to understand and be gripped by a book like Exodus or Deuteronomy or 1 Samuel, which is dealing with Israel's past. Anyone relate with that? I mean, if you, if you find yourself kind of uninterested in the book of Daniel, uninterested in Israel, uninterested in their future, I bet you anything you're uninterested in their beginning. You're uninterested in Exodus. You're uninterested in what happened first. And so therefore you're like the person coming to the movie and saying, yeah, this is interesting, kind of, but it doesn't really grip. While this passage we're going to look at this morning isn't dealing with Israel's past, but Israel's future, it'll be helpful for us to before we begin looking at it, to reflect a little bit on Israel's past. Daniel's people are the ones that are in view here, right? Daniel's people are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can read about them in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. And because of promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. Because of promises he made to the, the patriarchs, he delivered a massive group of people out of Egypt, and he made them his people. That's what he said to Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may serve me. And God brought them out of Egypt and promised them the land of Israel, the land that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now just reflect on this for a moment, brothers and sisters. Over 600,000 people, probably even closer to a million, 
over 600,000 people saw the miracles that God performed and the wonders that he performed in Egypt. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, most miracles that take place these days, you hear about it like one person, grandma, you know, grandpa, so-and-so in the hospital had prayer and the doctor was amazed. You know, but we're talking 600, over 600,000 people. That's almost the population of my home province, New Brunswick. Okay? That'd be everyone in New Brunswick seeing the miraculous works of God and the wonders of God. Not just one, but ten massive wonders upon Egypt. That amount of people. And then, not only after the ten wonders, these six, over 600,000 Israelites see the parting of the Red Sea. The mighty deliverance of God uh, redeeming them from Pharaoh's armies. Can you imagine what that would be like to be there? Can you imagine just for you to be there and see that? It would be amazing. But for 600,000 people? And then these same people came to the mountain and it was on fire supernaturally and there was all this lightning and smoke and God literally spoke to them audibly out of that darkness and they all heard it. Over six, that's a huge amount of people. That's an amazing thing. And not only that, but for a period of 40 years, this group of people about the size of the province of New Brunswick were miraculously fed by God with supernatural food from heaven for 40 years. Wow. I hope that you can see what a phenomenal uh, thing that really was. And that's not something that has a parallel to anything else in history. God was imprinting something upon the world during that time. And that enormous imprint still remains today. There's an effect, there's an impact that remains from what God did at the beginning. And that impact will remain forever. We're never to forget those things. I think it's sad when Christians don't even think about and reflect on this enormous thing God did in the past. And then for years and years in the figure of millennia, Israel was especially cared for by God. They were watched over by God. God judged them when they sinned. He delivered them miraculously numerous times. We're talking for millennia. God was watching over them. During that time, God describes his relationship with that nation, with that people, in terms of him being their shepherd. Him being their mother. That's what he says. Can a mother forget her children? No, but even if a mother would, I will never. God describes his relationship with them in terms of a father caring for a son, in terms of a husband and a wife, a lover. That's the way God thinks about that people. Shepherd, mother, father, husband, lover. It's wonderful that the almighty God who created heaven and earth has relationship with this earth and with people in those categories, isn't it? Isn't it amazing that God would just condescend to be a mother or a, a husband to people? The Bible repeatedly is amazed at this relationship. Most Christians tend to not be. Psalm 147 verse 20 says, God has not dealt so with any other nation. Wow! That's what the psalmist is saying. Isn't that amazing? God has not dealt so with any other nation. 
Amos chapter 3, verse 2. Amos says, You only, or God through Amos, speaking to Israel, You only have I known. And that known is not, obviously here, a superficial knowing. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, we know that God knows everything, right? God obviously knows all the families of the earth. But this is that special know. This is that special know that God has only had with Israel. You only have I known in that special way. So there's an intimate relationship like husband and wife between God and that people. Let's not miss that. And brothers and sisters, relationships like these don't just get God knew that they would be rebellious, right? Was God naive when he took Israel out of Egypt? Was he, was he naively hopeful? Did he know what the future would be? Did he know that this people would ultimately reject his son? Did he know that or was he shocked like everybody else? God knew because God knows all things. God knew they would be re- rebellious and God chose them with that knowledge. God chose them because God had a plan. And it's amazing when you read the Torah and you read even the words of Moses, the first leader of Israel. Moses repeatedly said over and over to Israel that they were going to fail. You're not going to be keeping this covenant that you're making with God this day because you're stubborn, you're stiff-necked, and God knows it. You're a rebellious people from day one. And God prophesies through Moses that they will rebel and reject him. God knows that they will be like sheep who depart from their shepherd. God knows that they will be like a son who violates his relationship with his father. God knows that they're going to be a wife who commits adultery on him. And yet God still chooses him. It's kind of like when God tells Hosea, go pick a wife who's an adulterer. And that will picture my relationship with Israel. God chose a wife who's an adulterer. He knew from the beginning what would be. And this is exactly what's happened. God said it, and it came to pass. God says a very interesting thing through Moses in Deuteronomy 32, that because you will provoke me to jealousy with all of your idolatries and with all of your rebellion against me, I am going to provoke you to jealousy by, by turning to another people. Because you provoke me to jealousy, because you do that to me, I'm going to do that to you. That's going to be judgment on you. I'm going to do it, but I'm going to make you jealous, just like you made me jealous. Just like I long for your affection and love, I'm going to make you long for my affection and love. God says that right at the beginning. And so it came to pass, as As God said, Israel rebelled against God and rejected him, and God turned to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Remember this in Romans chapter 11? The Apostle Paul expounds on this. He was talking about this. It was part of God's plan to bring the Gentiles in. See, God does love the whole world. That's what the Bible teaches. For God so loved the whole world, he gave his only begotten son. But the way God chose to draw men to himself is through this plan. And God made Israel is making Israel jealous and made Israel jealous and will make Israel jealous by turning to Gentiles, people who have nothing to do with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and saying, come on in. 
to this great salvation. Come on into this great relationship. Come be a sheep and I'll be your shepherd. Come be my wife and I'll be your husband. Come be my son and I'll be your father. God invites now the whole world to come because he loves the whole world. But nonetheless, it's part of this amazing plan that God has. Paul says in Romans 11, 11, he's discussing the question, is God done with Israel? Has God rejected his people, Israel? And he says, no. He says in verse 11, I say then, did Israel stumble so as to fall irrevocably? Have they stumbled and are no more? Will they never rise again? And Paul says, may it never be. I'll tell you why Paul was so passionate about this because he was engaged and gripped by the beginning. Right? Why are so many Christians not passionate about this? Because they're not engaged and gripped by the beginning. May it never be. He says this. He gives an explanation of their fall. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and who may, how, how many of you can say amen to that? Unspeakable riches we have in Christ. Amen. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Paul's saying, look, if their fall brought all this blessing, what will their bringing back in? What will that bring? What will their coming back to God bring for this world? In the next couple of verses, he says, It'll be like life from the dead. Totally miraculous regeneration when they come in. In, a, in an odd way, we're thankful that Israel fell, right? So that we could come in. I mean, it sounds really bad to say that. But since we're blessed by their fall, we ought to, to be excited by their return. Moses and the prophets did not just predict Israel's rebellion and rejection of God but they also prophesied of Israel's salvation. You read this through Genesis all the way through the last prophet of the Old Testament. And you'll find that they don't just say, this would be wrong to, to think this, that they don't just say, Israel, you're, you're so sinful, you're going to fall, and God's going to punish you and judge you. And end of story. They, they prophesy of their salvation over and over and over again. You can't miss that. And they say it in these terms that God is a good shepherd. He's going to go after his sheep. God is a mother who will never forget her children. God is a father who loved the son. Jesus was in the same stream, stream of thought when he gave us the prodigal son story. It's like, for, for many Christians, God's relationship with Israel as a father and son doesn't really correlate to the prodigal son story. It's like, oh, you rejected and rebelled against me? Okay, see ya. We're done. That's not how Jesus described God as a father. God is a husband who is jealous for his wife. And he told Hosea to marry that prostitute, but to be faithful to that prostitute. And so God will be faithful to Israel. And so there's so many places you could point to in the prophets that speak of Israel's salvation, their return, their coming back to God, their being blessed by God, things being made right between them. Isn't that fitting, brothers and sisters, for the God of the Bible? That in what he began, he's going to finish. In what he started, in his relationship with his people that he brought out of Egypt, there's going to be a beautiful finish to that. He's going to rescue them and redeem them. There's going to be reconciliation. That's what Christianity is all about. It's, it's just fitting. 
You know, you should be able to just reflect on that larger picture. And as Christians especially, we should be able to see this easily. I would encourage you to read, um, and you could really go anywhere, but I would encourage you to read, say, Jeremiah chapter 30 through 33. Jeremiah 30 through 33, those chapters talk not only about Israel's sin and how they're so bad and how they're going to be judged, but about how God is going to rescue them and redeem them, and one day that people will be saved. This is what makes Israel so unique, so unlike any other nation or people without any parallel, because we know they're going to be saved. That's really weird, isn't it? How many of you know who, what people are going to be saved besides them? Anyone else? Can we point to an individual on the street and say they're going to be saved if they're not saved at this time? It's weird. It's weird that we know that Israel's going to be saved, and I think people get tripped up on that because there is no other parallel, and so we think, well, it can't be true for Israel because we don't know it in any other instance. But it is unique. How many of you pray for the salvation of unsaved loved ones? Right? You pray for their salvation. Please save them, God. Please open their eyes. Please draw them to yourself. Please show them their sin. Please reconcile them to yourself. And what if God were to answer and say, okay, I will, in 30 days? What if God were to say, in 30 days I'll save uh, Uncle Bob? Sure, you asked for me to save him, I will, and I'm just letting you know I'm going to do it in 30 days. Would God have done anything wrong by saying that to you? Would he, would he be violating anything in the in the world by telling you in advance, okay, I'm going to answer your prayer and save them in 30 days? I can't think of anything that would be wrong with that. It's unusual, I'll grant you that. I don't think God ever does that for anyone but Israel. This is the situation that God has simply said, I'm going to save them, and we all know it now. And so now we're expecting it to happen. If God told you he would save Uncle Bob in 30 days, you're going to be watching the calendar, right? And you're going to be expecting God to do it if, you know, God really did say that. And if he didn't save Uncle Bob, then God's character and his faithfulness would be brought into question. This is how it is with this people. He said he'd do it, and so we expect it. And his faithfulness and his character is going to be brought into question if he doesn't. And that's exactly the situation God wants it to be. Because God wants his faithfulness and his character to be in the fulfillment of his word. He wants us to watch and he wants us to see that he is going to be true to his word. So we can all say God is faithful, not just because we've, we think that's a nice thing to say, but because he actually is, and because he actually acted and did what he said he would do. It's the incredible divine saga, the long, complicated story that God has been making, that God has been involved in, created. This story between God and Israel that you can begin in Genesis and you can read it. And don't think of yourself when you read the Old Testament as you're just catching up or letting someone else catch you up on it. You should begin in Genesis like you're watching a movie for the first time. And you should begin to read it and say, what's going on here? Read it as if you've never heard it before. Get wrapped up in the story. Get gripped by the beginning and you'll be gripped by the end. Daniel chapter 12 is dealing with Israel's future, just like most of the book of Daniel is. This last prophecy in the 
Daniel chapter 12 is no exception. You'll remember in the beginning of this, uh, the beginning of this final prophecy, it started in chapter 10, and in chapter 10 of Daniel, verse 14, the angel tells Daniel that I have come, you can look at it, 10.14, now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. So this is what this vision, this prophecy is all about. It's about Daniel's people, and it's about the end. Everything must be read in the light of that. Everything also must be read in the light of the covenantal perspective. We've talked about this a lot when we've gone through Daniel, but Daniel chapter 9 uh, makes it very clear that Daniel, the prophet, is thinking of his people and his people's history and his people's future in terms of that covenant relationship that God has with them that they made at Sinai. God's promises to them, yes, but also God's law. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you don't, I'll curse you. And so Daniel is reflecting on Israel's situation, their, their captivity, and he's saying, God, you are righteous and we are unrighteous. The reason why we're here in Babylon isn't because you were an absentee landlord. The reason why we're here in Bab- Babylon isn't because it was just happenstance or chance. But we're in Babylon because we violated the covenant and you have fulfilled your word in punishing us. But God, I'm not appealing to you on the basis of our righteousness because we are not a good people. God, I'm appealing to you on the basis of your mercy and your promises to us. Please change the situation, God. Not because we're good. We know we deserve this, God. But because of your faithfulness to your promises to us and because of your goodness. Even the prophecies of the future need to be read in the light of that covenant. What I mean is this. If Israel is going to be blessed in the future then righteousness is going to have to be brought in for them and established for them. Because God can't set aside his covenant. God can't say, you know, I know I said I'd only bless you if you're righteous. Let's just forget that whole thing. But we do know that they're never going to be righteous based upon their own works, based upon their own law-keeping, based upon their own strength, based upon their own striving. It's never going to work. They're never going to be righteous. They're never going to be blessed if it rests on their shoulders. But nevertheless, righteousness has to be brought in. Daniel 9 deals with that, right? I'm going to tell you that in 70 weeks' time, 70 weeks of years' time, righteousness will be brought in for your people. So even the prophecies need to be understood in the light of that covenant, of the need for righteousness. At this point in history, when Daniel's writing, and at this point in history when I'm speaking this, Israel is still unrighteous as a nation. And according to the prophets, they will remain unrighteous until the very end, when they finally become righteous through putting their faith in Jesus Christ. The same way you and I are righteous, when they finally turn from their own self-righteousness and they trust in God's Messiah, who died for them, to bring in that righteousness as a gift. So as Christians, as we read this prophecy or these prophecies in the Bible, it should resonate with us. These prophecies are essentially just showing us the end and how Israel is going to be birthed into their salvation. How they're going to be birthed. This is their birthing. It's a really painful process. But once they're birthed, they have new life. And we'll see what that birthing is all about and what it involves here in this prophecy. But I'll tell you, as Christians, we should be resonating with it all. We should be reading and saying, this makes total sense in the light of the gospel of Christ. What's this pain all about? What's this birthing all about? 
And as we'll see, it's to bring them to the place of losing their strength and their hope in themselves so that they put their hope in the Messiah, Jesus. Which makes perfect sense to us as Christians. I'd like to make three points about this prophecy this morning, or actually about the, the three verses that we read this morning. Just three points. First point. There is such a thing as the Great Tribulation. According to the text that we read, there is such a thing as the Great Tribulation. I'm sure everyone here has heard about the Great Tribulation. It's hard to be a Christian and not hear about it. And I know that a lot of people brush off such an idea as fanatical fanfare, right? The Great Tribulation, that sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie or you know, something like that. And so often we'll just brush things like that aside as, as fantastic. But here it is, brothers and sisters, verse 1 of chapter 12. Daniel is told that there's going to be a time of trouble unlike anything that has ever occurred since there was a nation until that time. That is why it's called the Great Tribulation. Because there's no time of trouble like it. It merits the phrase, great. Nothing has ever been like it before. Now, this isn't the first time the Bible talks about the Great Tribulation. So when Daniel heard this, he should have recognized another scripture that actually was before him. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, and look at verse 4. I told you that this was a section that talks about Israel's salvation. And Israel's salvation here in 30, 31, 32, and 33 is in the context of great tribulation. The great tribulation is what births their salvation. Jeremiah 30, verse 4. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Can a male give birth? Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? Why have all the faces turned pale? So he's seeing all the men looking like women in childbirth. That's pretty intense, isn't it? I mean, we can understand why the women do that. Why are men doing that? What's going on? It's interesting that when Daniel, if you remember, when he received a vision of the Great Tribulation in Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8, when he received a vision of the, of the sufferings and the trials that his people will have to go through in the future, it actually says that he responded in this very same way. His face went pale. He was distressed. Almost like he was, by seeing this, his face turned pale too at the end of verse 6. He was amazed at what he saw. This is really an intense thing. And look at verse 7. Here's the explanation. Here's why these men look like that. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. Sarah, same word used in Daniel 12, verse 1. There will be a time of sorrow unlike any other. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. Now what does it say here, though, of Jacob? He will be saved from it. He will be saved 
from it. See, that's what Daniel is saying also, or that's what the angel is saying to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12. It's going to be a time of great distress, but he will be saved from it. And look at this just beautiful follow-up verse here in verse 8 and 9. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will break his yoke from off their neck. I will tear off their bonds. It will deliver them from their slavery. And strangers will no longer make them their slaves. No more will strangers make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And I believe that's a, that is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a great tribulation, but at that time they're going to be delivered, they're going to be saved. No more strangers will ever harass them. Why? Because they'll be righteous and no more need for punishment. And they'll be serving God and their king David, or the son of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus also talked about the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24, verse 21, in the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus is talking about the end. The disciples ask him about the end. And Jesus says that when you see the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about and Daniel wrote about, which we've been looking at in the book of Daniel as we've been going through, when you see the abomination of desolation, now it's time to get out of where? Get out of Jerusalem. Why? Because there is going to be a time of great tribulation, unlike anything the world has ever seen before, nor will they ever see ever again. That is a direct allusion or even citation of Daniel chapter 1. Because remember, Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Because you've got to remember that Daniel 12, 1 is talking about the great tribulation at the same time and context of the abomination of desolation. Daniel chapter 11 verse 31. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, at that time there will be a time of distress. What time is that? That's referring to the prophecy, it's referring to the time he's been talking about in the prophecy of Daniel 11 that we've been looking at. At that time. Starting with the abomination of desolation in verse 31. Why? Because Jesus said, after the abomination of desolation, there will be a time of great tribulation. So wherever you place the Great Tribulation in chapter 12 is the same place you must place chapter 11. All those things in chapter 11, those, those two events go together. Really, they're one event. And whatever you say about chapter 11, you're going to have to also say about chapter 12. Those two things cannot be separated. So what this means is that in the future, there's going to be great distress for Israel. There's going to be great tribulation for Israel unlike anything that they've ever seen before. And that's hard to imagine. But it will be their last distress. It'll be the final time of trouble for them before they are saved and out of which the whole nation of Israel will come to understand that Jesus Christ is their Messiah and enter into the salvation that we as Christians now enjoy. Samuel Tregelli's the Greek scholar, commenting on Daniel here, says that past history will afford no parallel and the energy of Satan will then have an unhindered character which God at present does not permit. Because we know that Satan only has permission from God to do what he does. That includes this great tribulation. Horatius Bonar, the poet, writing about the great tribulation, says this, Earth, what sorrow lies before thee? None like it in the shadowy past. The sharpest 
throes that ever tore thee, e'en though the briefest and the last. He's, as a poet, saying, watch out, earth. Sorrows are coming, though they be brief, and though they be the last. Wallace Emerson, commenting on the great tribulation that Israel is going to go through, writes this, We who have seen Hitler's attempt to exterminate all Jews in what was the most notorious and perhaps the greatest single diabolical event, effort in history are reminded that this is only one of many previous attempts, and as we see, it will not be the last. Even so, we wonder how anything more terrible could happen to Israel. From the Maccabean persecutions, the million or more killed in the capture of Jerusalem by the Romans, the five or six million done to death in Auschwitz and other horror camps, we wonder how there could be survivors of the nation at all, harried and robbed and tortured during the Middle Ages, the victim of pogroms in Tsarist Russia. How could a people endure more and survive? Indeed, only a remnant does survive. For, quote, at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book, that this is a minority, is in, indicated in Zechariah 13.8, where we read, in all the land, two parts shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. You know, you think about Israel's history and you just reflect upon it, and we, we are shocked that no other nation has seen such prolonged suffering and intense suffering over the years. It hasn't been relinquished and let up. And we may ask, well, what is the explanation of this? Why is it that that people has had such a difficult history. Why is it that that people, and we believe we live in a, God, in a world where God is sovereign over all things, God is in control. This isn't to be explained by the roll of a dice. Why is it that God has put that people through such trouble? And the answer many people give is, I have no idea. Maybe God doesn't exist. But the biblical answer, there's no mystery, brothers and sisters. There's no mystery. It's not a mystery. For from the very beginning, God said, if you, my people, because we've entered into this covenant, violate it and do not obey and listen to my laws, then the sword will follow you wherever you go and you will not have rest in all the nations that I scatter you to. There'll be trouble and tribulation and anguish. And it's because you're my people. If you weren't my people, I'd treat you like every other nation. If you weren't my people in covenant with me, then it wouldn't be so bad for you. It'd just be like everybody else. But the very suffering of Israel over history actually is proof that they are God's people and that they are in covenant with God and that they violate that covenant and that they are not righteous. It's a lesson for everybody that you enter into a covenant with God based upon your works and you're going to fail. It's a lesson for everybody. Take, that's why Isaiah and the prophets are always saying, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. Look at Israel. Learn from their history. Learn from what's happened to them. I gave them everything they needed to obey me. I gave them all the miracles anyone would ever want to see. I gave them prophecies, prophets. I gave them the best land that there is. I protected them. I loved them. I did everything for them. And they rebelled against me. So away with all your excuses, mankind. Away with all your excuses about your sin. You don't sin because your environment. You don't sin because you don't have enough money. You don't sin because so-and-so is kind of being mean to you. 
You sin because you're bad and not a good person, because you're sinful, and you, as well as all mankind, don't really have love for me and for your Creator. Because if you did, you'd be giving me the honor and the glory and the obedience. That is, do me. Learn from them. Confess that you too are sinful. So one answer to the question, why does God put Israel through all this? It clearly is because they are his people. And God is being faithful to the covenant that he entered with them so long ago. That covenant doesn't get dissolved in time. Time doesn't make God's promises go away. You might say, well, it's so long ago, it doesn't apply to them anymore. I don't know what kind of God you believe in. Because of their sin and because of God's judgment. But we also need to point out that God is not punishing his people uh, simply because he wants to annihilate them. I mean, if it was just punishment, if God said, you know, you're sinful, Israel, you're unrighteous, clearly you are, you don't deserve my blessing, clearly they don't, therefore I'm just going to punish you, he would have annihilated them long ago. You remember that with Moses? These, I mean, right at the beginning, God knew they were worthy of annihilation, right? He said, Moses, step back, I'm destroying every last single one of them. That means they're guilty of annihilation. So are we all. The reason why God hasn't annihilated them all is because he's actually, in his forbearance, not pouring out all his wrath upon them because of his promises to them, because of his great name. Remember how Moses pleaded, God, if you do that, it's going to look really bad on your record. Right? No one's going to trust you anymore. It's not God's purpose only to punish Israel and to annihilate them. It is his purpose to bring his people to himself. It is his purpose to save them, his purpose to discipline them and instruct them and to bring them unto salvation. Look at verse 6 and 7 of chapter 12. This is, this is the most important reason for the Great Tribulation. This is the explanation of the Great Tribulation. One said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these amazing things, these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left towards heaven. It's always really important when angels do that. Take note. Don't brush this aside. And swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time times and a half time. And as soon, this is what this period of time is going to accomplish. This is what the Great Tribulation is all about. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, holy doesn't mean they're righteous, holy means they're set apart. As soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Once their power shattered, it's over. Once their strength or their arm is shattered, then it's all finished. This is the purpose of the Great Tribulation. You see, all of God's past judgments upon Israel have not brought about, have not brought Israel to their breaking point, unfortunately. Right? All of the things Israel has gone through, just reflect on the Old Testament, reflect on the, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem, and reflect on how Israel responded. Did Israel respond by saying, 
you know what? We are totally unrighteous and we cannot succeed here in our relationship with God. We cannot do it. We have to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. We have to look outside of ourselves for righteousness because we're evidently unrighteous and we're not going to do this as history is abundantly proven. We really do need Jesus as those Christians are saying. We really do need a Savior. Has Israel been brought to that point yet through all their past sufferings? No. Why? Because their strength hasn't yet been broken. Israel continues to say, we can do it. If we would just do it, then our troubles would be over. If you go to a synagogue today, even today, you go to a synagogue and, and you'll hear a rabbi give a message, and that will be the core of the message. Come on, guys. Look. The reason why we were punished in the past is because we weren't pulling up our you know, our, 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 uh, our bootstraps and doing it. Come on, guys. Let's do it. We can do it, guys. We can. They still have optimism about what they can do. Or other Jews will say, why would God do that to us? Why would God punish us? There's probably no God. So instead of admitting, hold on here, the reason why God is allowing us to go all, through all these things is because we're unrighteous. No, we, they won't consider that option. It's not because we're unrighteous that we're suffering. It's because there is no God that we're suffering. And so you have that today. A lot of Jews are atheists. A lot of Jews are self-righteous. God will bring about the end of their strength and the end of their hope in themselves. Israel, through the Great Tribulation, through that birthing, is going to hit rock bottom. I don't know how many of you have ever hit rock bottom. You know that when you hit rock bottom, that is when you lift up your eyes to God. Amen? And God has to hit you and bring you down to rock bottom in order for us to lift up our eyes to Him. That's what happens when you become a Christian, essentially. Because as long as you have hope in yourself, as long as you think, I'm a good person, I can do it. Yeah, I sinned, but I can make up for it. As long as you think that you can make yourself right with God, you haven't hit rock bottom yet. You haven't realized that you've got nothing. You are a spiritual beggar. You have nothing to offer God. And it's when you realize you've got nothing, and often God in His ways brings us to that place, right? And that's when we have no other place to look but to God. Remember when I became a Christian, that's what happened. I was a very self-righteous person at one time. I still, we can all struggle with self-righteousness still. Sure, but at one time I was thinking I was a good person. At one time I felt like I was going to heaven because I was better than other people. And I remember when God made me hit rock bottom. I had nowhere I could look. I remember looking at myself, there's nothing there but condemnation. There's nothing there but sin. I remember looking at, there's no one that can help me. No one, no words that people can say, no comfort, no, nothing that others can do could, could fix this problem that I have with God. That I am a sinner and He's a righteous and holy God. And I deserve damnation. Who can change that? And I remember it was at that time that for the first time in my life, my eyes looked up and I, I, I looked up to God and my hope was found in God, not in myself. I remember being struck by the first line of the song, In Christ Alone, My Hope is Found. That was the, that song that I had sung many times at Brunswick Street. And, um, you know, you can sing lots of, you can come to church, you can sing lots of songs that are 
sound doctrine and true, and it can go in one ear and out the other, and you, you're just liking the melody. It doesn't really hit you, right? But for the first time in my life, it was like that, that line from that song, In Christ alone my hope is found, it hit me. And I realized that my whole life I had never had my hope in Christ alone. It was always in me. Until finally I had hit rock bottom, I realized I didn't have, if it was in me, I had no hope. And it was then that all of a sudden that song made sense, that concept made sense, the gospel made sense. And I looked to Christ and I found peace with God through the Lord Jesus and not through myself. And I can say that since then, my hope has been built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and his righteousness, not my own. And that alone is what gives me peace. I don't get up in the morning and have hope and peace because I think I'm such a good person and I'm doing well. I know I'm a sinner. But I know that Jesus Christ is a great Savior for sinners like me. Hitting rock bottom is what happens when you become a Christian. And what God is doing here with Israel. It's, it's amazing that this, uh, this saying in verse 7, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. That that's actually something Moses says in Deuteronomy 32. That's the most, one of the most amazing chapters in the Old Testament when Moses is on his deathbed and he's prophesying what's going to happen to Israel in the future. He says, you guys are going to blow it. God's going to turn to the Gentiles to provoke you to jealousy. God's going to rain down judgments upon you. But then he predicts God will save them. And he says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 36, that the Lord will have compassion and save his people when he sees that their power is gone. That's what it's, and it's the same word in the, in the Hebrew here. The word is hand. And he sees that their arm or their strength or their hand is gone. And so the Lord will have compassion on those people when he sees that their power is gone. And now Daniel is being told that the great tribulation is going to get rid of all that power that they've been trusting in. Then the Lord will have compassion on them. The German scholar Heinrich Ewald, he said, commenting on Deuteronomy 32:36, when their power is gone, when all the rotten props of its might upon which it has rested are broken. Because that's the truth. If you are trusting in anything besides God, it's rotten prop. It's a rotten prop. You think it's strong and it's not. It's not going to save you in the day of trouble. The only thing to trust in that is secure, that is faithful, is God alone. Amen? And that's what, as Christians, that's what we were singing. I do not trust the sweetest frame, because all the sweetest frames besides God are rotten props. We as Christians stand in God's power alone. We trust in God alone. God's power is Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to save us. We trust in Him to save us as sinners, and not in ourselves. If you're trusting in yourself to save you, you are not a Christian. Deuteronomy 32, in that context, goes on to say how God wounds and he heals, how God kills and he makes alive. That is the way of God. That is how God, our amazing God works. First he wounds, then he heals, he kills, meaning you got no life left, you got no strength left, you got nothing left. If you're going to be alive, it's because he's going to have to raise you by his mighty power. Amen? And that's exactly what the New Testament says happens when you become a Christian. 
You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no life. You have no hope. You just don't realize it. Then your eyes are open. You realize, I'm a, I'm a zombie. I'm a corpse. I'm, I got nothing. I cannot save myself. I cannot recon, uh, redeem my situation. And then Jesus Christ, He is the one who saves you. It's like a resurrection from the dead. It's like a, it is a, a miracle of miracles that you become alive in Christ. It's the way of God. Killing and making alive. That's what he's doing here with Israel. He's killing them so that he can make you alive. Happy is the man who's been killed by God so that you can be raised by him as well. And woe to the man who thinks he's alive without God because he really Daniel is told that this will happen when Michael the archangel stands up. It's, it's wonderful that Michael's name means who is like God. All of these things should make us remark, who is like God? Who is like God to, to save in this way and to perform these wonders? There is none like him. The fact that Michael is Israel's prince, just like there was other angelic princes for other nations, and the fact that Michael is an archangel shows the importance of Israel in God's world. This also shows that the Great Tribulation is the doing of God and not simply the doing of Satan and the Antichrist. We might think, well, this is just Satan kind of slipping away and wreaking havoc when God wasn't noticing. But actually, Satan doesn't have any opportunity to do what he does until Michael stands up, until Michael allows Satan to do what he will do. Kind of like when Jesus said to Judas, Go and do what you're going to do. Jesus gave him permission to do that. No one takes Israel's life, you could say, but God is the one who takes Israel's life. No one kills anyone apart from God. No one raises anyone apart from God. Stephen Miller, the commentator, says that Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9, appears to be the divine interpretation of this conflict in Daniel 12. This is the only other place... Uh, besides Jude, where Michael is mentioned, in Michael chapter 12. And what's amazing, or uh, Revelation chapter 12, not Michael chapter 12. Uh, in Revelation 12, we've got Michael warring with Satan. And what's really interesting is that Michael casts Satan to the earth, and when Satan is cast to the earth in Revelation chapter 12, it says, Woe, praise, praise, you know, give glory to God, heavens, because Satan's gone. You know, he's not in heaven anymore. But woe to the earth, for Satan has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And then the, the John tells us that Satan then goes and persecutes Israel and the Christians for a time, times, and a half time. Isn't that interesting? It's the very same thing that Daniel says here, that this great tribulation is going to be for a time, times, and a half time. It's when Michael stands up and John says the same thing. So I see a parallel between Daniel 12 and Revelation 12. Michael stands up. Satan is cast down to the earth for a short time to do his to do his work by God's permission. Woe to the earth. Thus there is a great tribulation. Second point I'd like to make from this these three verses is that though God is a God of wrath, because we understand that this tribulation is from God as a judgment. God is also a God of salvation who saves us from
from his wrath. Remember that psalm, Lord, if you marked our iniquities, who could stand? If God was a God who just marked iniquities and punished sin, how many of you would be able to stand? How many of you would be saved? If God was simply a God of judgment, no one. Who could stand? Not a soul in this building or on this earth. But there is forgiveness with God that God may be feared. God is a God who saves. This is our message as Christians. He's a God who saves sinners. And look at verse uh, 1 again, but the, after the part about the tribulation, Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time, what's going to happen to Daniel's people? It tells us. Your people, everyone who is written in the book, will be rescued or saved. So here, Daniel is told, not only there's going to be a great tribulation, but they're going to be saved. Your people will be saved. Here we see that all of Israel is going to be saved because Daniel is told that your people are going to be saved. And the ones who are saved are everyone who is found in the book. At that time, the only ones who will be found in the book are everyone who remains because Daniel is told that your people will be saved. This is a statement of Israel's salvation. In Isaiah chapter 4, turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, I think Daniel is alluding to this, for these things are related. Daniel 4, verse 2 to 4. And this is talking about the judgments that God is going to pour out upon his people, but through which they'll be saved. A remnant will be saved. But that remnant will represent all of Israel. At that point, there won't be a partial, uh, a mix of those who get it and those who don't. It'll be all of Daniel's people. In verse 2 of chapter 4, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Not that judgment actually atones for our sins, but through judgment Israel is brought to the point of salvation. Through judgment they come to see their, their need for Christ and they turn to Christ and they are saved. So all Israel will be saved. Everyone who is found recorded for life in Jerusalem. The book here that Daniel mentions in chapter 12 is also mentioned in Daniel 7, verse 10, when, when the judgment is set to punish the Antichrist and to end the time of tribulation, the books are open. The Antichrist time comes to an end. How happy are those whose names are written in the book of life? For on judgment day, you will not be judged by your deeds. On Judgment Day, it will not be the book of deeds, if you will. It will not be you standing before the Judgment Day and God opens the book and all of your deeds that you've ever done and all the sins that you've ever committed will be brought before God in judgment. That is the fate of all those who don't have their name written in the book of life. The book of the Lamb, the book of Revelation tells us, the book of the Lamb of God. The Lamb's Book of Life. Is your name written in that book? Because if it is not, then on Judgment Day, 
all of your sins will be brought before you and you'll be judged. But if it is, because your name is there, not because you're a good person, but because your name is there, written among the righteous, those who believe in Christ, you will be saved and not come in to damnation. Jesus tells us to praise God if your name is there. And quickly look at verse 2. That not only is there salvation from the great tribulation at this time, Daniel even tells us of a, an even more incredible salvation. Not only salvation from the great tribulation, but salvation from the very enemy of death. Verse 2 tells us that many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the resurrection from the dead follows the great tribulation. The resurrection of the dead happens at this time. This is an amazing thing. The, the dust, it tells us here, those who sleep in the dust of the ground. That should remind us of Adam. That should remind us of Genesis chapter 3. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. Why do we die, brothers and sisters? We die and go to the dust because of sin. For the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. But here, look at the reversal. From the very dust they are raised. From that which had consumed them and overpowered them, from their wages they are raised. How can a person be freed from their wages unless they have had a miraculous identity change with Jesus Christ? How can the person be freed from death unless they've passed from death to life through the salvation of Jesus? If there's no other way that you can be redeemed from what you deserve unless Jesus Christ takes away your sins and bears the punishment that you deserve himself, the punishment of death. This is clearly talking about the coming of Jesus when the dead in Christ will be raised. It's, it's actually quite amazing, the language here. Notice it does not say that everyone will be raised at this time. You see this in verse 2? A lot of Christians miss this. They think that Daniel's saying that everyone will be raised at this time, but it doesn't. It says, many of those who sleep doesn't say all who sleep. Many of that group, many from that group that sleep, will be raised at that time. And then in the Hebrew, the word is Ella, these, to everlasting life. Some translations miss that, and it's been pointed out by many scholars. Some translations say some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting contempt, and that's a mistranslation. It gives you the impression that some are raised to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt at that time. But the text says, many of those who sleep in the dust will awake, and these who raise will be to everlasting life. The Those who don't rise at that time will be to everlasting disgrace and contempt. It's amazing the parallel that this has with Revelation chapter 20 when it's talking about Jesus' return and he defeats and destroys the Antichrist and redeems Israel from their tribulation. And then it tells us that the, there's a first resurrection that takes place. And happy are those who are a part of the first resurrection. Paul tells us that when the Lord Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation, that the dead in Christ will be raised. Not all the dead, but the dead in Christ will be raised. And it's not until much later 
that the rest of the dead will be raised and judged. And woe is you, the Bible says, if you're not a part of that first resurrection, but you're a part of that second one. You want to be among those who raised at that time. And uh, the, the, the point I'd like also, oh, I'd like to say that all the saints of every age will be re, reunited at that time. This is a glorious reunion of all the saints from the dust. It's, it's hard to even wrap our minds around how amazing that's going to be. You can just wonder. Look at chapter 12, verse 13. Daniel will be there on that day. And if you die before then, you'll be raised on that day with Daniel. Verse 13, the angel says, Daniel, as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So even Daniel will be there. Oh, to be there in that day. The last thing I'd like to say this morning in closing is that according to this passage, not only is there such a thing as the Great Tribulation, not only is God a God not only of wrath but of salvation, clearly He saves us from the Tribulation, or Israel from the Tribulation, He saves people from the dust, but that this salvation that it's talking about here, this eternal life that it's talking about here, is said to be the result of righteousness. This is not God bypassing or discarding His covenant, His justice, His character. This is God saving us in the light of His covenant, in the light of His justice, in the light of His character. This is what makes God's salvation so amazing and not an illegal trick. Because we actually do deserve the dust. And yet he raises us from the dust. Not because he says, well, forget the whole thing about justice, I'll just raise you. But because he has actually provided righteousness for sinners. He's actually provided righteousness through Jesus Christ for sinners. And so that a sinner who believes in Christ is justified, the Bible says, is declared in the judgment of God to be not a sinner and to be righteous, and therefore that person is raised legally and in keeping with the justice of God and the character of God because he's raising the righteous from the dead, not the unrighteous. And you might think, well, whoa, how is it possible that we could then be raised if it's, if it's the righteous who are raised? And the Bible tells us, and we Christians proclaim, that you can be righteous through faith in Jesus Christ apart from your own works and apart from your own goodness. Isn't that an amazing thing? Now a righteousness apart from the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all those who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, from China to Canada, right? But they are justified freely by His grace through the sacrifice of the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. These are the ones who are raised, and the fact that they're the righteous gives us the understanding into God's salvation. It's interesting, no matter where you go in the Bible, you can never escape the issue of righteousness. It doesn't matter where you turn, righteousness is always staring you in the face because God is a righteous God, you are an unrighteous sinner, and you need to be righteous 
You have to believe in Jesus to be saved. That's always staring you in the face in the Bible. Jesus, when he alludes to this very passage in Daniel 12.3, Matthew 13, Jesus, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and Jesus says that the harvest is the end of the age. The angels will go forth. They will gather up the tares and throw them into the furnace. But then the righteous will be gathered up and brought into the barn. And then he says, and he quotes Daniel 12.3, that the righteous, he uses the word righteous, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And that's exactly what Daniel means here in verse 3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. That's the sun. Wow. Sinners who are saved by God's grace and righteous, people will shine like the sun at that time. And Jesus says they are the righteous. Daniel says they're the ones who have insight. Those two things are inseparable. The righteous are said here to be those who have insight. You cannot be righteous without insight. You cannot have insight without being righteous. That's your problem if you're not righteous, by the way. If you're not a Christian here today, and if you're a sinner and still in your sins, if you are not righteous through faith, it's because you don't have understanding. That's the reason. And God says, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. you just got to turn on your mind. you just got to use your mind. Just reason, just think. Learn of me. Your problem is you don't have understanding. The same word insight is used in chapter 9, verse 13 in Daniel, and it's put this way. They give attention to the truth. You know why you're not a Christian if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian? It's because you don't give attention to the truth. You're giving your attention to all sorts of foolish, transient things that don't last. Give attention to the truth. Give attention to God. Give attention to the fact that you are a sinner. Give attention to the fact that you need salvation through Jesus. Give attention to the fact that you are never going to be righteous through your own works. Give attention to the fact that God sent his son to die on the cross for you because he loves you and he invites you to come to him and be forgiven of all your sins freely as a gift through the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ was shed to wash away your sins. It's his blood that takes them away, not your good works and your actions. Give attention. Gain insight. And you will be righteous. Look what it says in verse 3. It also describes the ones who have insight in the righteous as those who lead many to what? What do they lead them to in verse 3? They lead them to righteousness. They're telling others about righteousness. That's because people need to be brought to righteousness. Righteousness is the main thing. Have you been led to righteousness? What would that mean? It means that you understand that God is a righteous God. It means that you understand that Judgment Day, God will not lower any of his standards. On Judgment Day, God will not make any exceptions. On Judgment Day, you have to be, you. if you're going to pass Judgment Day, you need to be found to be perfect and whole in your moral behavior. And that is something that none of us are. How many of you can say you're perfect and whole in your moral behavior? You're morally perfect. You love God perfectly. You love your neighbor perfectly. You never sin. No one can say that. You understand that God is righteous. He does not lower his standards. You understand that you are unrighteous and you deserve wrath. You understand that God is a God of wrath. This is also the truth. You need to understand that God is a God who judges sin. It's not just words that we're saying. 
God will judge this world and he will punish sinners. That's, that is something that is true. You also understand that God is a God of mercy, love, and grace as it is revealed through Jesus Christ and that he provides the righteousness you need through his son's death on the cross for your sins. Jesus bore the wrath. Jesus took the penalty. Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits. He came up from the dust of the ground, from the tomb. He came because our sins were put away. And anyone who believes in him will likewise arise because they too will be found righteous on judgment day. What do you need to do? Put your total trust in Jesus. Put your total reliance, not on yourself, but on the power of God, who is Jesus Christ, to save you. Jesus Christ, let him be your strength. Let him be your arm of salvation and not yourself. Throw away all the rotten props. Throw away all the things that men trust in all over the world, government, education, all those things. They're good and they have a purpose, but they will not save you. Throw away the lists of what you need to do to be a good person. Throw away the rituals that you think you need to do in order to be right with God. And put your trust 100% in the Lord Jesus and what He has done for you. And if so, you are among those who have their names in the book of life. You will rise with Daniel on that day. You may rejoice that God has shown you that and that you are a part of that. But i like to close this morning by just saying, rejoice that you are saved if you are saved. But also rejoice that God will show Israel this as well. Also, I mean, we rejoice that through their transgression we have been brought in. But let's also be glad that this people that God brought out of Egypt so long ago, this people that he is a shepherd to, a mother to, a father to, a husband to, who have rebelled against him for millennia, and whom he has judged according to the covenant, this people that is dear to God, that God is going to birth them through this terrible time of tribulation. But at last, they will understand salvation in Jesus Christ. And God will be shown to be faithful. God will get glory and honor in all the earth. And Israel will be saved. Let's rejoice in that too. Let's be gripped by the beginning of the story so that we'll also be gripped by its end. Father, there really are no words that can be said to do justice to your amazing plan and your amazing gift of salvation that reveals who you are. There's just no way we can fully grasp that with our language. Lord, I pray that through what your Son has done for us, we would be struck in our hearts by how good you are, how faithful you are, how wonderful you are to provide salvation for undeserving sinners like us. Thank you that it's so simple, and yet, Lord, we're so dull to see it. Thank you for 
not leaving us in our dullness, but by bringing us to rock bottom, that we would see you. Lord, I pray if anyone's here, if anyone here does not have insight and doesn't understand the things that I was talking about, I pray that this would be the day that they come to understanding and they come to salvation and that they receive eternal life and hope and peace and the knowledge of who you are. I pray that this would be the day, Lord. And I also pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand all of your word and that we would have your heart as well and the heart of the Apostle Paul and the heart of the Prophet Moses for your people, Israel, that we would also uh, see what you see and long for their salvation as well. Lord, thank you for your, for your amazing plan and for our part in it. Lord, we give you glory for all of these things. You truly are worthy of our praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.